All right, if you would take your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. For the next couple of weeks, I'm not sure how long this is going to take, you're going to be getting a history lesson, church history lesson. But we're we're going to... We're going to address the issue of the authority of the church and what that entails. So there will be a few more handouts as well. Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to start at verse 9. I'm going to read down through verse 19. It says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, Desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious promise, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for uh, the church, and we thank you for uh, Lighthouse Baptist Church and these folks here. I pray, Father, as we look into the Word of God today and consider this topic, I pray that you would instruct us, give us understanding into thy truth, and help us to rightly divide thy truth and apply it to our lives, and that we might be pleasing and glorifying to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's some contention and confusion about the authority of the church. Of course, you understand there's a lot of organizations that call themselves church that, according to scriptural standards, are not a church. Um, anyway, so the questions we want to answer as we consider this topic for the next couple of weeks is, uh, what is a church? You know, who who is the scriptural authority? Is it the church? Um, and how that authority is established, and what makes a church one of the Lord's faithful churches? Um, there are churches that preach the gospel that really are not faithful churches, and we'll see that. There are examples of that even in the Bible. Uh, so, you know, and, and along with that is going to come the, uh, this, uh, um, the answer of who has authority to baptize as well. So as we look at Colossians chapter 1, and this is not deep th- theology here, although it is, but I'm going to make it very simple 
as you, you read through verses 9 through 19, there's something that's very consistent. Um, first of all, in verse 9, it says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled. Here's what God wants us to be filled with. The knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So it's the Lord's will that we as a church be filled with his knowledge, his, which is his will. It means to know his will. Uh, not ours. It's not church dogma that's important or church history that's important. It's his will that's important. Um, you know, of course, you got a lot of different ideas in churches today. Who who has authority to make who who has authority to 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 make certain uh, doctrines or or stands or whatever? No, we need to be filled with His will. It's His will, not the church's. Um, second thing we see here, verse ten says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing and being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there's a continual increasing in the knowledge of God. We'll see that throughout this passage. But one of the, the thing I want to note here is we're to walk worthy of the Lord. Again, it doesn't say walk worthy of the church. We're not to walk worthy of the church. You know, God is, the church is very important. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But it's not, the church is not the final authority. The Lord is. Uh, so we're to walk with and live pleasing to the Lord. Thirdly, we see in verse 11, it's the Lord that strengthened us, strengthened us, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. So it's the Lord who strengthens us. It's the Lord who empowers us. To endure in the Christian life. You know, as we think about, you know, he says we're to be strengthened with all might by his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering. So, so, you know, the real Christian life, I was talking to the Williamses a little bit about this too the other week when they were here. You know, the real Christian life sometimes is just plain hard. It's difficult. We have a world that hates us. And... You know, sometimes you can get, you, it's easy to get discouraged and, and, and so on and so forth. And because of the attacks of the enemy, you know, brother, we read Brother Alexander's uh, prayer letter on Thursday night. And, and uh, I texted him the other day and I said, uh, you know, uh, something to the effect that, that uh, you know, welcome. I didn't say welcome to the ministry, but I said that's sometimes the way the ministry is. And that's the way churches go. You know, you have, you have, you have people come and then people leave you. And, and so... <laughs> You know, sometimes the Christian life is just plain hard, but it is the Lord that strengthens, and our power doesn't come from us as a church. It comes from the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6 says, It's not by might, nor by power, but my spirit, saith the Lord. You know, the idea a lot of people have today is, if we would just all get together, all the churches unify, just think of the power and influence we would have. Sorry. God's not interested in that. That's not what we see taught in the scriptures. And, and, you know, what they mean is, you know, we get together with all our diverse ideas. 
Meaning we've got to lay aside some of the doctrines that the Bible teaches to unify. That's scripturally wrong. Uh, no, our strength comes from the Lord, not our size. Not our size. And it's not of us. Thirdly, it is the Lord that justifies. Verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet, or that word meet kind of means fit, fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So it's the Lord that justifies us and gives us an inheritance with the saints, along with all the saints. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 and verses 3 through 5, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, <coughs> Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us. So God, God the Father, through Christ, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's justified us to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So again, it's God that justifies us. And it's God that gives us an inheritance. We have an inheritance reserved. You know, in, in that song, we, the first song we sung is a reference to part of that inheritance we're going to receive and standing around the throne and rejoicing and praising the Lord and, and singing that hallelujah chorus in heaven. Um, so, but again, my point is, you know, all these things, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. Uh, verse 13. It's the Lord that saves us and gives us a transfer, if you will, from hell to heaven or from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Uh, verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That word translated means to be transferred from. So we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and the family of the devil, and we've been placed into the family of God and the kingdom of God through salvation. Uh, so again, it's the Lord that saves us and transfers us. A church cannot save you. A church can't save you. You can join every church in the nearest hundred miles, which would probably be about a hundred in this area, but you could join every church in the nearest hundred miles, and it, you would still you can still die and go to hell, because a church cannot save you, nor can a church condemn you to hell. Church does not have power to give you life or death. That belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Revelation 1.18 says, He said, I have the keys of death and of hell. He said, I am alive forevermore, but I have the keys of death and hell. So, you know, by the way, if you understand Catholic doctrine, all of us here are anathematized by the Catholic Church. Because if you aren't in the Catholic Church or you oppose the Catholic Church, you are anathema. You know, that's because the, the, they, they believe that salvation is in the church along with a lot of other churches do. But, you know, a church, again, a church cannot save you. Uh, the gospel and church membership are two different things. Number six, it is through the incorruptible blood 
of Christ, again, that we are redeemed. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So our salvation is purchased, been purchased by the blood of Christ. Uh, again, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, <coughs> excuse me, 1 Peter 1 and verse 18 says this, For as much as you know, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So, you know, Christ was manifested for us that he might die and shed his blood for the remission of our sins. So we are redeemed. That means we are purchased back, uh, bought out of the slave market of sin through the precious blood of Christ. Again, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 15, number 7, it is the Lord Jesus who reveals God to us. Notice verse 15. Who is the image? Speaking about Christ here. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Now, the word image means one in whom the likeness of anyone is seen. You remember in John 14, Philip said to Jesus, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Or, in other words, it, it will satisfy us. Jesus said, Have I been so long with you, Philip, and you know not the Father? If you have seen me, You've seen the Father. Because you know, in John 10 he said, I and my Father are one. Um, so, you know, John 1.8 says that he, uh, 1.18, I'm sorry, says that Jesus uh, declared him or made him uh, visible or manifest him before the world. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory... The express image, you know, the exact likeness, you might say, of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus Christ reveals to us in a human body who God is, what God is like. What kind of life did he live? He lived a sinless life. He reveals to us that God is sovereign. He could say to the wind and the waves, peace be still. And they were still. He could say to the disciples who fished all night and didn't catch anything. And by the way, they were professional fishermen. He said, cast your net on the right side and you shall find. And they throw their net on the right side and against his word and the net's so full of fish it starts to break. You know, he could say to, the, to the, the man sick with palsy, Arise, take up thy bed and walk. And the man picked up his bed and walked. You know, he, what he's demonstrating is that I am God. I have power over the elements because I created all things. So he, he declared, if you, if you want to know what God is like, you study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his person, and you, you have seen the Father. Uh, his, it speaks of his divine nature, his absolute, um, his, his virtues, uh, sinless life as well. Uh, we see also in verse 15 that the Lord Jesus is the firstborn. That word firstborn 
has the idea of chief over all. Uh, again, verse, verse 15 says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Uh, so he was, he's the firstborn. You know, it means that he's the first to rise from the dead and die no more. Revelation 1.18 says that he, he, that he is alive forevermore. Um, you know, others, you know, um, um, Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus died later again and was later buried. And of course, he'll be resurrected at the, at the last day. But, but Jesus, when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he, de- he resurrected to die no more. He's the firstborn to rise and never die. First to rise and never die. It also has the idea of an, if you will, elder brother, uh, meaning he is preeminent, he's chief, he's the prince of the kings of the earth, he's the spiritual head of all. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 and 29 says, For all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So he's got many brethren, but he's, if you will, the elder brother or the chief among the brethren. Remember, he told his disciples, uh, uh, or he told Mary, I think it was, to tell his disciples, tell my brethren, I go before you into Galilee, and there you shall meet me. He called them brethren. But he is the elder, and that's really what firstborn refers to. It means he's chief. He's not on the same rank as we are. Um, verse 16, number 9, he is the creator of all things. Verse 16, for by him are all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So he is the creator of all things. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him. And of course, the Word was made flesh. Verse 14 tells us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us that God, who at sundered times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. He's the creator of all things. Uh, and he is eternal. Notice verse 17. And he is before all things. That means he's eternal. The same was in the beginning with God, For John 1, 2. So he is, the, he is the eternal Son of God. He has no beginning and no ending. Now, as we're going to see uh, when we get into the history a little bit, and might even, we'll even talk about that a little bit later, there arose within the, within the second century a doctrine called Arianism. And really what Arianism is, is a denial of the eternal, eternality of Jesus Christ. They believe he was a created being. And so there were church fathers who started teaching that Jesus was created, you know, before the world, but he was created by God. You know, we have a lot of those in our world today. 
They're called Jehovah's Witnesses. And Mormons. Most of them believe that Jesus was created after God. So, uh, so it's not new. It, it's an old doctrine. But, but no, the Bible declares that he is eternal. He's before all things. And then it says also in verse 17 that by him all things consist. Now, you know, that means he holds all things together. Everything in this world, you know, do you ever wonder about <clears throat> what keeps everything in the, in the universe running in harmony without collision? Well, it's the hand of God. That word consists there means to cohere or to hold together. Uh, do you ever think about that water is made up of two flammable elements? Hydrogen. They make bombs out of hydrogen. And, you know, when I was in the welding shop, we used a lot of oxygen in a blowtorch. It was very flammable. And yet we use it to put out fires. Now, you know, water's not flammable, can't catch on fire because, you know, I got this off the internet, because it's made of hydrogen, has been fully oxidized and can't react with oxygen any further. However, the hydrogen and oxygen can fuel and increase a fire when they are separated. See, God's keeping this, all this together. And the world's going to be destroyed by fire. Do you ever think that maybe God's going to do something to the water? I don't know. Just thought. But, you know, it's God that holds everything together. And God declared, you know, this, there's, you know we're, we're, we hear this, this garbage science all the time about climate change and all that, you know. And, and I agree the earth does go through variations of temperature changes in different parts of the world at, at different times. But as a whole, things continue on as they always did. You know, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, I lost my train of thought. Um, you know, we've had, we've had droughts before, you know, in the 30s. You know, we're having droughts out in the Midwest. You know, in, um, was it 36? Um, trying to remember what they called it. Dust Bowl. They had the Dust Bowl in the 30s. And in the Midwest, you know, the, they, they plowed the Midwest and they tore up all the sod and then, then, it, then it got drought and dry and, and the wind would just pick up the, the soil and it was just, just a dust bowl. Um, so there have been periods, and there's, of course, there's droughts out there now. There have been periods of things like this before in history, but then it, goes, then it changes and goes to other parts of the world and, and so on and so forth. You know. I don't deny that, but the fact that the earth is getting warmer and we're going to melt the ice, icebergs and the glaciers and all that, you know. No, God said that after the flood, he said, summer and winter, springtime and harvest shall not cease. They will not cease. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 5 says, This they willingly were ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, so by the word of God, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So the earth arose out of the water, and it's in the water, but it rose up out of the water. Um, and so it rose up out of the water. And of course, it, you know, Brother Williams explained about the canopy that 
And it was all kept in its boundaries by the, again, by the word of God. And of course, God broke that canopy during the flood and also opened the boundaries of the water under the earth during the flood and brought about that flood. And then he sent it back to its boundaries. It's by a decree of God and his spoken word. So it's God that holds all things together. It's by him all things consist. And then we see also in verse 18 that he is the head of his church. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now in every one of these verses, the reason I did this was to point out or show to you that all these things come from the Lord. Everything. You know, creation itself. And the and creation being kept together, running smoothly, as much as man is trying to corrupt the world and all that, but it continues as it is, and will continue until the Lord comes. And... By the way, there is going to be great climate change when the Lord comes. I mean, it is going to get warm. There's going to be fire. And it's not going to be funny. Uh, people are going to die because of their opposition to God. It's going to be God's judgment. So, yes, there is going to be climate change. Um, but the Lord's going to bring it about. It's not being caused by the methane gas from the burps of cows or, you know, too many people breathing. And that sort of thing. Or the gasoline, you know, the, coming, or the, the fumes out of the muffler of your car. By the way, you know, carbon dioxide trees like that stuff, and so do plants. Um, but anyway, uh, no, all these things come from the Lord, and the Lord Jesus is the head of his church, or his churches as they are now. You know, that eats each church of his. The word head here means supreme chief, prominent of persons, master, or lord. Now, this is used, this reference similar to this is used three times here in the book of Colossians, uh, here in chapter 1, verse 18, also in chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, And ye are complete in him, so he's writing to the church at Colossae, ye are complete in him, which is the head. So it's referring to Christ as the head, of all principality and power. He's the head of all principality and power, and he's the head of the church. Uh, Verse 17, which are the shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So the church is of Christ. A church is the body of Christ. Uh, Verse 19, not holding the head. What's interesting about that word head there? It's capitalized. Referring to the person of Christ. Not holding the head, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. So when he's talking about the, all the body, by joints and bands. So he's comparing you know, a church to a body, and a bo- every body has joints and has bands and things that make it work and move. And see, you, are the, you and I are the joints and bands of this body that make it work and move. But we get our nourishment 
our direction, our instructions come from the head. That's the command center. And that is Christ for every church. Of course, Ephesians uses some of this terminology in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So we'll grow up in him because he is the head. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So as we think about the Lord, Jesus Christ, being the head of the church, what exactly does this mean? It means that he has all authority, and a church's authority is directly from him. It's directly from him. Now you might say, well, don't all churches claim that? No, they don't. So how can we demonstrate that? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. We see that the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ is the builder and head of his churches. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they say said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. So what we see here in this passage, of course, is Peter, the Lord asking them who he was. You know, and, and for a person to have salvation, they must understand who Jesus Christ is. Peter and the disciples understood at this point who Jesus was. And Peter answers for the group, and he says, Thou art the Christ. In other words, you're God manifest in flesh living among us. You're the anointed of God. That's what Christ means. It's a title. It's not really a name. It's a title. Um, though it's used as part of his name. But, and, so, and then Jesus says to him, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And here's where the confusion comes in with many. They believe that Christ said, I'll build my church upon Peter. But the word Peter, the name Peter, what's another name that Jesus gave Peter? Cephas. What did it mean? It meant stone. John 1, I have it somewhere here. Uh, in John 1, verse 42. Yeah, it is. Right, it's typed out here. He brought him to Jesus, that is, Andrew. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. And I was going to do it, and I forgot. But I was going to pick up a stone out here and bring it in. 
and show you this is a stone. A stone is something you can hold in your hand. You can throw it. That's what this word means. And, and, and there's two different words here in this passage, different Greek words defining. The one for Peter is petros, which means a stone. The one for rock me is petra, which means a ledge, cliff, or large stone. It's not something you're going to pick up and throw. No, Peter, Jesus said to Peter, you're Cephas, you're a stone. Well, he said, I'm not building my church upon a stone. I'm building my church upon a rock. I mean, a big rock. In fact, Daniel tells us that rock filled the whole mountain in the vision that he received. The rock filled the whole earth. So, Jesus is building his church upon himself. He is the rock. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that rock followed them, and that rock is Christ. So Jesus Christ builds the church. It, he's talking about the confession of Peter, not Peter. Uh, so the church is built upon Jesus Christ, and he is the head. He gives authority to his churches. Look at verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind in earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose in earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now to properly understand that verse, you need to go to chapter 18. See again, Catholics and others, denominationalists, will use that verse to say, see, the, the keys were given to Peter. In other words, the keys of salvation were given to Peter. In other words, he could... He, could, he, he had the power to save, and he had the power to condemn. Well, uh, is that really what that means? Uh, look at chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the pastor. Is that what it says? No, he says, tell it unto the church. He doesn't say, tell it unto Peter. You know, Peter, Jesus did choose, choose Peter to be the pastor when he left. John 21, that's what that passage is all about. Peter is being installed as the pastor upon Jesus leaving and going back to heaven. And so he had authority as a pastor, but he does not have authority to condemn or save. But the church, of whom he's the pastor, has the authority to receive membership or to reject membership or remove members. And that's really, that's what this passage in uh, chapter 16, verse 19 is about. And that's what chapter 18 here is about. If you neglect to hear them, tell unto the church. If you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So you're to vote him out. You remove his membership. So the Lord gives authority to his churches. Now this is not authority to give eternal life. And we've seen that already. Or eternal damnation. Only God can give life. This is the binding and loosing of membership. That's the authority Jesus gave to his churches. Uh, so a church of Christ has authority to receive members 
or to reject or remove members. That's the only authority they've been given. Not the authority to save or condemn to hell. So, so that is the authority. Uh, second thing I want to notice here is the Lord promised the perpetuity of his churches. Now, when he says in Matthew 16, verse <coughs> 18, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter upon this rock. Of course, the rock we're referring to is Christ himself. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then go to chapter 28 and verse 18. Chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus is about ready to leave his disciples and go back to heaven. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All, all power, that's important, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So, he says, All power is given unto me. Jesus said that. The word power here is the word exosia. There's two words used for power in the Bible. In, first, in Romans 1, 16, Paul talks about, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The word there is dunamos, from, similar to where our word dynamite. Whereas the idea there is the, the word of God or salvation has the power or the ability to change people, change hearts. The word here is exosia, it has to do with authority. Authority. Not change, but authority. And so, Jesus is saying, all authority. I have universal authority. The authority to do as I please. And you remember Thursday night, I think I read this portion, when uh, I think it was in Daniel was answering Nebuchadnezzar concerning his dream, his vision about the tree. And he says that you need to learn that God does as he pleases in his kingdom. You need, and what he's saying is, look, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to understand something. You are not sovereign. God is. And when you rebel against God, he can, he can bring you down. And he was. He did. So God... And Jesus Christ is saying, Jesus is saying here to his disciples, look, I've been given universal authority. I have all authority. All or all creation, all mankind. I am the authority. It's been given to me. And, and Jesus Christ then authorized or passed that authority of loosing and members and receiving members onto his churches. So, if you notice here in, in verse 20, he's, he's teaching them, his disciples, to, uh, in his church, to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So, we're to be in obedience to him. He's the authority. And lo, I am with you always. How long? Even to the end of the world. Now, that phrase, end of the world, means to the, it speaks of a perpetuity of time, or rather the consummation of the age preceding Christ's return. So really the idea is until Christ comes back, we've been given 
This authority is passed on from church to church. So God rules in this time over his people through his churches, over which Christ is the head. First Peter 5, 4 calls him the chief shepherd. He's the chief. Remember, he's the firstborn. He's the elder brother. You know, a pastor without a church has no authority whatsoever. He's just a man out there like everyone else. No, it's the church to which the Lord Jesus gave authority. Uh, yes, a pastor is to lead the church, but he is not the authority the church is. The church has the authority. And so, as we think about all this, as we come to some conclusions here, I'm about finished. So salvation is not in a church or through a church, but in a person. The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a church can't save you. A church can't condemn you to hell. A church can give you the gospel. In fact, that's the purpose of churches, is to clearly preach the gospel. Secondly, Jesus promised to build his church on himself, on that rock, that cliff, that ledge, if you will. So it was on himself. He would build his churches. And thirdly, Jesus has given, been given all authority over his churches, which he is the head. He is the preeminent one. He's the command center. He is the word. Uh, therefore, he is the one to authorize the church by a perpetual passing of his authority through his churches. And this is to continue till he returns. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. We see a little glimpse of this, Ephesians 2. And, and this is a pattern I believe we see in the New Testament, Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. And I think we can prove it from history, as, as we'll show you here uh, maybe next week. Ephesians 2, 19 20 says this, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the foundation is Christ. Christ gave the command and authorized the disciples, and they, are, they commanded and authorized those after them, and it just continues. It continues, but the head or the foundation remains the same, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the origin. He's the author. He's the firstborn. He's the head. Now you're going to ask the question, well, don't all churches recognize him as the head? Some say it, but in actuality it's not. And I believe we will readily prove that. But you're going to have to return next week. So I keep you in suspense. But, and, and we see that, you know, and, and by the way, this was common practice for the first 200 years of church history. Almost all churches believed in local church only, repentance and faith, uh, although there were errors that were taught by some people, but it was not widespread or controlling. Uh, and, of course, you know, during this time there were errors creeping in. If you look up those verses, which I've kind of run out of time, but, and we'll, so we'll go over that a little bit more next week, but if you look up those verses that are, that are 
the bottom there of the page, 2 Corinthians 2.17 and Galatians 1 and so on, all of them talk about how there's, there's, there's corruption coming in. There's error coming in. There's, there's this error that's creeping in. And, and, of course, you go to the churches of Revelations chapter 2 and 3, and they've got some serious problems. They're still churches, but they're in danger of losing their head. They're in real danger. And so, um, so we're going to answer that question. Have all churches been authorized by Christ? And we'll see. But, you know, we need to understand that Christ is the head. You know, we need, that's why we say that uh, the scriptures are our sole authority. We reject church fathers. We reject church canons. We reject, you know, if it, as long, if it agrees with the Bible, it's okay. But there's a lot of that stuff, as we'll find out, does not. And so uh, Christ is the head, and he, he has authorized his true churches, and there's a faithful remnant. You know, you can, and we'll, I'll, I'm going to demonstrate this. You know, there's a there's a, a family tree for the correct texts of the Bible. There's a family tree for the corrupt texts of the Bible. And what you're going to see is there's a family tree of the faithful churches, and there's a family tree of the corrupt churches. And by the way, the family tree of the corrupt churches is the origin of the corrupt Bibles. They're all the same. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. And so we will identify those corruptions and the faithful ones.